What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation. I'm your host, uh, Mike, and joining me, as always, is my co-captain, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And returning to the podcast is uh, PJ Campbell from the PJ Campbell Network and head writer of the movie Trivia Schmodown. Hey, guys. It's good to be back right at the end of 2020, so I'm closing out in style with you all here. How are you guys? I'm doing good. I'm doing fantastic. So on today's show, we have reviews for Lupin the Third, the First, and Disney Pixar's Soul. But first, we have a couple uh, news items. Some of them are par for the course for 2020. So Cameron, what do you got? Well, we lost two. Well, recently, we lost two animation heads. Uh, Doug Crane, who was a renowned East Coast animator, passed away at age 85 from cancer as if that thing hasn't taken enough people this year. Um, so um, his, like he's worked in a lot of stuff, storyboarding, layouts, backgrounds, character designs. He worked on stuff like Beavis and Butthead, Mighty Thor, The Smurfs, Raggedy Ann and Andy, A Musical Adventure, He-Man, uh, Heavy Metal. I think he also worked on like some of the UPA uh, co- cartoons, but um, basically a lot of the 80s stuff that you would know um, also like Mighty Mouse. So it's 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 a shame. Um, he has a pretty prolific legacy and, you know, he'll be missed. Unfortunately, I wish I was the only person who passed away, but unfortunately, director, storyboard art, artist, writer, and animator who worked on stuff like uh, SpongeBob, Tuck Tucker, passes, passed away on the 22nd at age 59. He worked on stuff like Rugrats, The Ren and Stimpy Show, The Simpsons, Hey Arnold, Ah, Real Monsters, and Duckman. And plenty of other stuff. The Mighty Bee, Camp Laszlo, The Fairly Odd Parents, Oh Yeah, Cartoon. And, you know, it's a shame that they both passed away, especially Tuck Tucker, which 59 is young still to me. And that's, I man, I just turned 31. I don't want to think about passing away 20 years from now. <laughs> So, but that is enough for that. So may they rest in peace. We got some new information for Sing 2, the sequel to probably everyone's mostly favorite Illumination film. Certainly mine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we have Bono, Leticia Wright, and Pharrell uh, Pharrell Williams are going to be joining uh, the sequel. Um, Along with uh, Bobby Carnival, Chelsea Peretti, Hazley and Eric, uh, Hazley and Eric Andre, they'll be re- joining with returning cast of Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, Scarlett Johansson, Taron Egerton, and Nick Kroll. Um, let's see, uh, where is it? Um, so Bono will be playing a lion called uh, named Clay Calloway. I actually kind of like that name. Uh, who became the world's most reclusive rock legend after the death of his wife. Dark. Okay. Uh, Before Buster Moon and crew can impress an an intimidating music mogul, Wolf Jimmy Crystal, who's going to be played by Carnival, um, enough to grace the biggest stage, they must persuade Clay Calloway to perform in the show. Pharrell Williams is playing Alfonso, an elephant ice cream truck owner who becomes a love interest for uh, Mina, who is voiced by Tori Kelly. Hazley is going to voice Jimmy Crystal's uh, teen daughter, Porsche. Uh, 
Leticia Wright will play uh, will play a uh, streetwise feline dancer who helps uh, Egerton's character, and Andre is going to play a self-important yak who who is um who is cast in the stage production opposite Mina in a romantic duet, and Peretti will voice Jimmy Crystal's haughty canine assistant and talent scout. I like the voice cast. I like the ideas. I couldn't imagine a better fit for Andre than a yak. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that's it's the most perfect casting i've heard out of out of all of those it's uh, so it's so funny because immediately the eric andre one you hear it and you're like well that checks out for that for him as far as like bono bono has had such an interesting career just where he every once in a while he pops up in things anyone who's seen across the universe remembers he had a small part in that as well so to see him jumping into something like this is very interesting to me. Um, Bobby Cannavale is always a very welcome addition to anything. I think he's incredibly talented. And Chelsea Peretti, similarly, I'm a big fan of her. I'm a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan. Um, so obviously, to me, that just that made my day. But the question I have for you guys is with Letitia Wright, because unfortunately, over the past several weeks, Letitia Wright has uh, become rather infamous on the internet and has been pushing some anti-vax type stuff uh some maybe anti-biden type stuff because she seemed to lean in on this idea of the election being stolen and that biden is somehow being part of like some antichrist movement and stuff um you think she sticks around on this thing i Hmm. if 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 she keeps like if she keeps this up i i doubt it we'll probably hear an announcement within like the next month or two that she's getting replaced, but who knows for sure. Yeah. I can't imagine that she's going to stay on much longer, but we'll have to see because otherwise that would be kind of a really bad stinking point of watching the sequel, but uh, we'll have to see. Um, But yeah, I, any, I'll, I'll say this though to lighten up the mood because of rights. Ugh. Um, I hope that even if it seems ta- like tasteless and just for the meat like reference, I hope the yak does a pizza ball reference for because if you watch the Eric Andre show, he has his, a famous skit where he's just like he goes around trying to deliver a ball made of pizza. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, we'll have to see. Um, Mamoru Hosoda, the famed uh, director for The Girl Who Left Through Time, Summer Wars, Wolf Children, Boy and the Beast, and Mirai, which was the first non-Ghibli anime film from Japan to be nominated for an Oscar, has a new movie coming out next year called Bell. And um, not a lot of information is out on this. Um, apparently, it's going to... Uh, have like a premise somewhat similar to uh summer wars in terms of just like social uh, a huge social media uh print like setting kind of like kind of like with summer wars with that whole uh online world social media network that was in that film and um i'm excited i love mamoru hosoda and i know he kind of caught a little flack with some people by saying like i want to make anime but not make anime if that makes sense because he's like i was tired like basically he was 
tired of making film, like working on traditional anime projects and he wanted to work on his own uh, features and whatnot. So um, any thoughts? Um, just the premise of this sounds sounds fascinating. I'm, I'm a little less familiar with uh, with Hosoda's work than, than Cameron, but it's, it's a filmography I've been meaning to, to catch up on. Uh, his films are so good. Just like w- Wolf Children was like the best animated film of uh, 2013. Uh, Mirai was my favorite animated film of 2018. And uh, he's very unique because he also has an approach of t- basically setting his films around family connections mm-hmm. like uh like summer wars was about the legacy and connection with like the overall family wolf children was about a single mother raising two kids uh the boy and the beast was about um uh sorry uh it was was about um a father-son connection and then mirai was a uh brother and sister connection and it just his films are great. You might know him more from his work on the Digimon movie that yeah, I, got yeah, yeah royally screwed over by Fox and Saban back in the day. So I was I gonna mean, say yeah. that for me was that was where I originally found his work was because I used to watch Digimon. I remember seeing the movie and followed him from there kind of on and i think that the girl who left through time and the boy and the beast are both two of the best films of the last 20 years like especially in animation i think they're both really really fantastic um dude is super talented so anything he's going to do is never a bad idea and it's the kind of thing that i want to keep an eye on you know like he's done a lot of work in to the point he's kind of gotten lumped into only being looked at as the anime guy for some people because he did do work on some of the dragon ball z movies and episodes and he did do some work on digimon outside of that and one piece and things like that but he's so much more than that like he's so talented that's a thing. A lot of directors work on the franchise stuff. Keiichi Hara, who did Miss Hokusai, worked on Shin-chan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another director, I forgot which one, and I know we just talked about him with Children of the Sea, but he worked on, the, I think, the Doraemon franchise. And so it, it's like they start, like they have to start somewhere. And even, even Miyazaki, like people forget Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro, um, was directed by him, and he directed like two episodes of the animated series. Yeah, which were like put on their own DVD because mm-hmm. everyone was like because they were that good, and you could tell they look wildly different <laughs> than mm-hmm. than because this was like I think the Red Jacket era. It was. And, it was in the yeah. middle of the Red Jacket era. Yeah, so it's just like, and you, <laughs> one of the episodes has a cameo of the Castle in the Sky robot. <laughs> oh yeah I, I i noticed that <laughs> yeah and that was his like he was basically trying to put it behind him in a way but he also you know wanted to go out in style in the best way possible because miyazaki is that dude and so you know similarly you can't really blame Hosoda for wanting to try to do anything else because you don't want to get lumped in like that no it's like i think a lot of people kind of mistook his comments for like oh so he thinks anime is below him. And it's like, no, he's not saying that. It's just like, anime is a great art form, but yep. rarely do you get to wink something that's not in that mold. And yeah, so it's just like, 
anytime that a director can work on something that's not just traditional anime, they're going to take it. So the big news story is that Warner Brothers has announced a, uh, a feature film or like apparently a, tri- a trio of features released set for 2023, including one, a, um, a film called Coyote versus Acme, which is based on the Wiley Coyote character and the company that he gets all his gadgets from. So set to rocket in, rocket in the theaters on July 21st, 2023, Coyote vs. Acme is being directed by Dave Green, who worked on TMNT, Out of the Shadows, and Earth to Echo, with a screenplay from James Gunn and uh, Jeremy Slater, John Silberman, and, jo- uh, and Josh Silberman, and Sammy Birch. Um, Producers are animated animation veterans Chris uh, DeFeria of Key Light and James Gunn of Two Monkeys, a Goat, and Another Dead Monkey. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so this is kind of interesting. Uh, what What do y'all think about this news? I remember, um, like, at least like ten years ago, there was there were rumors of a similar project being developed at Warner brothers. Yep. And this, this movie sounds eerily similar to that, that earlier film. I, I'm interested. Did I, I, and this, I was just reading this from the animation magazine article of it, but did they say if it's going to be fully animated or is it going to be like, no, a- it's a hybrid. And that's hmm. why I think Mike has a point because there was a movie kicking around since the early 2010s, maybe even late, to, like late 2000s called Acme. And it was very similar to this. And it was kind of described as Night at the Museum meets Warner Brothers and uh-huh. using the Looney Tunes characters. And so I kind of, I mean, I know that you guys know because you, like me, have been following the business for a long time. Stuff that kind of floats around never quite leaves the executive desks. And even regime to regime, like, you'll see that the notes that kind of get left around, they kind of pick up the pieces and find a way to rework them into something new. And this is exactly what this sounds like to me. And that's not a bad thing. I always think that some projects, depending on how long they've been around, is never a bad thing to, like, retool them a little bit, work on them a little bit, because rushing things is never a good thing. And no. p- pushing things out that need to that you want to just to like meet a quota is never good either. And so the fact that this project's kind of kicked around for a while, but they're clearly also being like, how do we make the Warner Brothers characters matter again? Because the truth is, unfortunately, and I think we can all agree, is that we like the Warner Brothers characters, but outside of us, they are not nearly as popular as say a lot of Disney's characters. And Warner Brothers wants to make a splash with them again at least in a general public setting. So are you guys down for it, for being a live action animated hybrid? I mean, we've already kind of seen that twice with Space Jam, Looney Tunes back in action, and then a Space Jam sequel coming out next next summer. And then of course, uh, WB with their freaking Tom and Jerry film. Uh, film. Um, I don't know if I really want this to be a hybrid just because... I mean, I don't know. I guess if they had to pick a character to do that, I guess Wiley Coyote would fit the bill better than others because a lot of his was just methodical planning and then that plan backfiring on him. 
I I don't know. I I, I guess I want to see a uh, plot synopsis. Before. Yeah, I'm trying to see if I can find anything better than what we know. But Be- because like the thing with Wiley e. Coyote is he's a mute character. I mean, yes, there was that one time he uh, tangled with bugs, but I don't count that, and nor, nor do I count his clone who uh, were who uh, worked alongside Ralph the Sheepdog. Right. And um, I, I don't know. It's like I just don't want him to talk. Please no, I agree talk. with that. And I'm looking right now, and the most we've got essentially is after failing to catch the Roadrunner, he takes it up upon himself to go to war with the company that supports him. So are and, we getting like are we getting like an on basis of of sex or something on this where it's just gonna like it's gonna be a courtroom feels, drama? <laughs> that'd be amazing. I to be honest with you, like uh, look, um, we it was just mentioned Looney Tunes back in action like gets a lot of flack, but I think that is actually like fair like the studio messed with it a lot but there's a lot to enjoy about that movie and joe dante definitely rode the line of being like live action and fun while also being a looney tunes cartoon it's really going to be dependent on what they're able to do with dave green and having james gunn as part of the person who wrote the script tells me that there's gonna be some tongue and to uh tongue and cheek fun nature to it like the scooby-doo movies Mm-hmm. And so clearly Warner Brothers is back in the game of getting Gunn on board. Obviously, we know they're very happy with the Suicide Squad enough that Peacekeeper's getting his own show. So to have him come in and like write this Looney Tunes cartoon, because he's done it before it with the hybrid thing. It, it, it's interesting because you have to think it's going to be like just kind of bizarre and over the top and only the way that James Gunn can do. But also like dave green is not like a well-known actor or director i mean like out of the shadows was not that well received and earth echo was okayly received but it's a very interesting choice considering the the writing behind it i think that's the one thing that's also kind of caught my attention was the director because yeah as much as as it was satisfying to see some of the tmnt characters uh, in that film it wasn't a good movie and as at first i was like well the fans should be happy and they should go see it and nobody went to see it and it's like well great (laughs) the fans have disappointed again but then it's like you remember more of the movie and it's like eh, i don't blame them (laughs) my my only hope is this also means that wb is so in on the james gunn business that they finally green light a third scooby-doo film where they're all older and like dealing with a midlife crisis together that, yeah, that would be awesome. If, I would love if, to see that. If if he's on board to write and direct, yes, I I think it'll it'll be, it'll be kind of like the Logan of of the Scooby Doo trilogy. Yes, oh, gosh. absolutely, and that's kind of what I want. Um, because earlier in the year, I'll, over on the network, we did watch-alongs of the two movies, and that's all I could think of was like I want Gunn to come back with this cast and like actually get to write and direct it. I know. I mean, I don't remember enjoying those live action films that much, but it's been like ages since I've seen them. But I remember like there was always kind of a fun energy to them, but it was always like bogged down by the studio interference and ugh, Raja Gosnell um, as director of those movies. And I'm sorry, he hasn't made a movie I liked and he keeps being stuck with those live action animation hybrid films and yeah but uh, no we'll we'll have to see i i i want to know what the approach for this is because i don't know 
well, we'll, we'll have to see. But um, yeah, that um, that's it for all the news. Yeah, pretty pretty light uh, news week, which is which is nice since we're heading towards the end of the year. Yeah. Um, and now we're moving on to a franchise that I know you two are are big fans of. Yeah. This is yes, Lupin the Third, the first. Lupin! Oh gosh, I I got so excited when I watched that movie. Oh man, be a screener and you hear Doug Airholtz as Zinni gotta yeah just yell. Yeah, I mean that's that's always like an iconic thing of uh, it. A hundred percent is look. Uh, can I just say out the gate real quick, like it, it is absurd to me that we still had to wait almost a, an entire year just to see this movie because it, it, it came out last December yep. in J- Japan and China and it took until this October for it to even get a theatrical release and then like late November, early December for us to finally even get digital copies of it here. So I've been waiting for this movie for a really, really long time. Uh, I'm a big fan of the franchise and this is the first movie in 23 years. So you bet your ass I've been waiting and like just wanting to see something because the cartoon, like when Cartoon Network brought the show back over for the first time in like the early 2000s for us and to get that cast and I'm not, I'm not normally the guy who says that you need to listen to a dubbed version, but the American dubbed cast is one of the few times where I'm like, holy shit, like they just get the characters. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's honestly one of the, this is one of the few franchises where I am very picky about who they get for the voice cast. Yes. Because I know that, because there are many different dub casts for these, and it kind of depends on who distributed distributed the franchise. And I'm sorry, but the Genion dub cast of Tony Oliver, Richard Epcar, uh, Lex Lang, and Michelle Ruff. Oh, that, that, sound, better, that sounds like the definitive cast to me. It, it is a hundred percent. I know. Th- I know. Funimation had a different voice cast, and they're fine. I'm not. I haven't been a huge fan of that one, except for like. Uh, Oh, I think it was like Lupin the Third, Dead or Alive, where I thought, mm-hmm. okay, that was a pretty good Lupin the Fur, uh, the Fur, a uh, third dub cast, um, film, but, um, and then they're like for the specials that Discotech put out, they, uh, they got different people for them, but they brought back Richard Epcar as Zenigata, and it's just like, oh, they were so close, um, but they got Dan Warren as, uh, uh. Oh, what's his name? The uh, the shooter, uh, the sharpshooter, Jigen. Yeah, Jigen. Uh, oh. Richard Epcar is so good as Jigen. Yeah, I know, and that's the thing. Richard Epcar is Jigen. The, yes. You can't recast him. It's like someone saying, "Hey, we should redub uh, Cowboy Bebop and redub uh, Steve Blum," and it's like, "Uh, no, don't touch that." And and I know some people are kind of mixed on Tony Oliver's take on him, which makes him a little more goofy. But I like that version. I, I mean, I know Keith, uh, I think his name is Keith Silverstein, uh, who plays him in the specials. Mm-hmm. He's okay, and I like him, and I like him as Ian in Doro Hidoro. But Tony Oliver, man, you got to have Tony Oliver as uh, I, Lupin. I could not agree more with you, and I know that's a weird thing, but the, and it, look, maybe a part of it is because Tony Oliver is the guy I grew up on because, you know, his Lupin was the one that I fell in love with. Yeah, no, I, we did. We didn't get the uh, Green Jacket Lupin series. We were that one got skipped over for the Red Jacket. Yep. 
and then we got then the uh, pink jacket got skipped over and then it, the the franchise is kind of weird in the u.s release because it it was like periodic releases all around until recently when discotech became a much bigger company they were like no let's just bring over all the lupon yeah and it's it's been weird watching it try to roll out and like again to your point like it was always sporadic for us because even the runs on cartoon network never got finished like they would skip episodes or you know which is unfortunately very normal over here but like then they would get to a certain point and then that the contract would be up and they'd never finish it yeah no it, it's interesting because this, this is like one of the prolific anime franchises probably alongside city hunter from uh just in that kind of same time zone and period and it, it's just interesting how the u.s never ate up any of it as much as like like hong kong was a bigger city hunter fan uh fan base than the u.s which is interesting to me because you know city hunter got that jackie chan film and yep. lupon man it's just it, it doesn't make sense to me because lupon is all like well we we talk about this mike and i and i and i think you heard about it before lupon doesn't matter in the continuity department no you, you could watch any version and jump into it and instantly understand how to like how everything works who's who and what the uh chemistry is and that and that's really what i like about the movie um so let let me do a quick little history rundown for this film um so this is directed by uh takashi yamazaki who directed uh last year well i guess this year's for us for the u.s viewers uh dragon quest uh your story Mm -hmm um yeah it was released back in december in japan and china and then it was one of the major films for the annecy film festival um for the online segment which not mike and i never got to fully see they only showed the first 10 minutes which was just a bummer because you know if you've seen our annecy episode it was just like like you want the crowd pleasers well too bad you're getting the stuff that was made because the director wanted to make it in for the director and only the director <laughs> um and then yeah g kids picked it up and then everyone was like oh who are they gonna get and then they were like yeah we're, of course we're getting the iconic voice cast back and though i did see someone say they wanted ben schwartz as lupon if they got celebrity casting and i was like mm, uh, no. are we just gonna is ben schwartz gonna be that guy now that everyone wants to be in everything because obviously we had him in sonic and we you know like he he was one of the better parts about sonic but can we just try to understand and this is a thing for me and i'm sure that you guys feel similarly just because you get people who are like well known does not make them good choices and fits for the things that you're trying to do agreed 100 percent. yeah agreed and then yeah this one came out and had a small limited theatrical run and then was recently put out on uh digital and will have a full u.s like physical blu-ray dvd release uh in january so i have it pre-ordered already Let me yeah tell you. same here I, I got the steelbook edition me too because, yeah me too so yeah so where should we start with this should we start with the story so let me just say real fast out the gate um uh, to mike and, and cameron's point one of the beautiful things about lupon when done correctly this is not always done correctly but when done correctly you can jump into any one of these stories kind of similar to like an indiana jones style pulp serial and mm-hmm. that 
is so important because you need to know the characters, you need to know the world, but you need to be able to like have a good time with it. And any franchise that has any sort of history is always kind of scary and daunting to look at. And Lupin the Third, the first, one of the brilliant things about it, obviously the subtitle kind of says it for itself. The first, it's a double meaning for something in part of the movie, but it's also a 23 year wait to reintroduce this character to a new audience who may not know him and the world. And this movie so brilliantly plays into that pulp narrative style. This is arguably the most perfect starting point for any fan of the franchise since the castle of Cagliostro. Like I adore what they ended up doing with this movie. Yeah, no. Um, it also means that it's the, fr- the franchise's first foray into CGI. Mm-hmm. Also. Um, no. Um, so let's start with the plot. So back in the world war two eras, a, a known his like art like explorer artifact per individual a um named Brisson had a special diary that has a secret to an unknown treasure that was unfortunately um being hunted down by the nazis the per- Brisson is killed and the diary is not lost per se but it's just like it kind of goes out of the public eye until decades later when it shows up at a Brisson Museum exhibit. And of course, knowing that it's fancy, priceless, and we're like, you know, there's only one of its kind. Lupin, voiced by Tony Oliver, um, plans on stealing it. Unfortunately for him, he is thwarted by a young thief named Leticia, voiced by Joy uh, Joy uh, Scatterin who is the granddaughter of Brisson or until, until we know um, that. And of course the ever, ever not non-surrendering uh, detective Zenigata voiced by Doug Erholtz. Um, so of course shenanigans ensue. The diary is taken by Fujiko because of course it is um, who is voiced by Michelle Ruff. And Lupin teams up with this young woman who um, has a connection to the diary and has a key that helps unlock its mystery and secrets. And they're going to try to find the treasure before the Nazis do. So where should we start with this? I kind of want to start with the animation. Yes. So this was their first foray into cgi animation and it's not always a let's it's not always a positive transition since you know not everywhere in the world works on or works at the same thought process with uh like with hollywood's definition of what how good and how much money to put into cgi animation the animation here was done by tms entertainment and marza animation planet and all things considered Japan is really getting there with CGI animation and their transition of taking the 2D designs and putting them into a 3D perspective really works. Like Lupin is still kind of cheeky looking, kind of has that monkey-like grin and the uh, more like exaggerated uh, movements and it just looks good. Like for all things considered. I would go as far as to say this is probably the best looking 3D animated film that that's come out of Japan in the last decade. 
and the like the fact that they were able to to translate these uh those like 2d character designs seamlessly into 3d i just find the most impressive and, and i'll go as far as to say and i know that mike you saw my tweet about this and i think cameron you did too i said not only is this the best leap from 2d to 3d that i've ever seen a franchise take and i mean we've seen it a couple of times most uh also recently with pokemon and pokemon did not stick that landing oh god but more specifically i think this is the best that the lupin and the and any of the characters in this world has ever looked and that's because it felt like this was the one time that they really spent the time and money to do it right and to fully realize this world and the characters and the thing that they live in and I, like just to really drive that point home if any of you listening haven't seen the movie yet i want you to go on youtube before you continue listening to this and look up lupin the third the first opening and just watch the opening credits of the film it is the most brilliantly put together opening that defines all the characters if you don't know them it is a bond style opening mixed with tintin with the original lupin theme put in like it is so mind-blowingly beautiful I am obsessed with it. Like, I have I am not kidding you when I tell you, if you guys know Maxwell and a bunch of the people over on our network, I have made them watch it so many times just trying to convince them to watch the movie. No, it's a very iconic opening. It's, well, instantly iconic. Yeah. And they even throw in the iconic Lupin running from gunfire yep. sequence, which kind of seems like you have to do that. And that's not a problem because it's such a unique look for, and... I love the little details that they put in that opening, especially with like the 2D uh, effects of the type of like the cars moving or like the uh, more kind of Looney Tunes or comedy style thing of like when Zenigata sends out his group, his like endless amount of police officers. And, and, and anytime scene, scenes like that take place, it, it, it always gets me like yes. every time. <laughs> well, they're all fate and like you could tell from their designs are all faceless. Well, they're not faceless, but they're 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 supposed to look like a, a no, I wouldn't say faceless, but n- non-detailed horde. Yeah, no, um, and I want like and I get all the little details down, like when a uh, Lupin jumps out of the the pile of police officers and he just kind of shimmies up and then pulls his boxers up. Yes, it's like that's great, and of course, of course, anytime any got up, like anytime, like. He, like Lupin could just be having a sandwich and then Lupin and then sorry, Zenny got up and just be like Lupin and Hey Pops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Golly. Um and then of course the action is really well done. Just like from the heist sequences to like the really good car chase sequence when uh Jigen yeah, car chases. Oof. Yeah, when Jigen and uh Goemon save Lupin from the from the uh police. And uh, I mean, there's, there's just, it's the animation is handled so well. There's some, some yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Not to step on what you're saying, no, no, like, go but ahead. to go, to go hand in hand with that, like the third act of this film has a very last crusade vibe. And if you've seen, if you've seen last crusade and you see this part of the film, you'll know exactly what I mean. And that animation in those sequences is like out of this world in how well it is handled as far as like the action of it all feels. Yeah, yeah. I was I was definitely getting Last Crusade vibes from from all of that. Yeah. No, and um 
I just like that the other that the other human characters also look like they fit in within the Lupin universe. Yes. Because that was always like a problem with some of the other previous endeavors with franchises jumping into CGI filmmaking. Like Pokemon, the characters all look like porcelain dolls and they just did not look good. The Pokemon looked great, but the humans, woof. Yeah. Um, and then Dragon Quest, your story took out the iconic. I mean, they were they looked like Akira Toriyama's designs. But then they like change the eyes and such. And it's just like, that's not Toriyama. That's someone trying to copy Toriyama, but not getting that essence. It was basically the Lion King 2019 of Pokemon and Dragon and Dragon Quest. Ooh, ouch. Um, and I mean, I'm sorry, but Lion King opens itself up for targets like that. And I mean, I know granted one of the villains does look like David Lynch. <laughs> it's david lynch mixed with david bowie yeah yeah that's pretty accurate <laughs> because and, i remember i remember when the trailer first came out everyone's like is david lynch going to fight loop on the third <laughs> i i kind of love it to be honest because i mean obviously like i'm also a sucker for david bowie david bowie's my favorite musician probably yeah. of all time and mm -hmm. just while i'm watching i was like this dude looks so much like david bowie and i couldn't wrap my head around how they got away with it no um it, it all works like yes. from, um and even like when they have the more like realistic design like textures of the uh like the world around them the characters never felt out of place and that's that's always such a hard thing to do because you know like the good dinosaurs suffered from that where it had really pretty landscapes but then all the dinosaurs looked like toys and, and I have to say another kind of funny reaction from it that I saw go around the internet when Lupin the third to first uh, showed up in marketing and whatnot. Everyone's just like, oh no, they made Jigen just a hundred times hotter than, than he already was. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no, I'm not going to lie. And I, I did see some like people post the, uh, the Squidward meme where they like post G a picture of Jigen without his hat. And then, Squidward going like, oh no, he's hot. <laughs> so um, anything else you guys want to talk about the animation or should we just jump into like the story beats and whatnot? Uh, I want to uh, jump in right to the story. So for me, the big takeaway from this film story was legacy. It was yes. about the granddaughter um, protecting hers and Lupin uh, fulfilling his grandfather's legacy which you all know Lupin is the grandson of the original Arsene oh. Lupin character from the books and I, first of all I'm so glad that it seems like Lupin can people can just say Lupin it more like more because you know there was that time period where they were bringing it over and there was a whole copyright dispute about uh, the Lupin estate or the, the writer of the Arsene Lupin books saying like no you can't say lupon but it's like but that's his name yeah and and they either had to call him wolf or boss or the wildly racist version rupon mm. like and it's like mm, don't like that i mean that's why i prefer the ma the manga uk i think dub of castle cagliostro because it's just it's more loyal to the uh, original script and everyone can just say lupon without any worry of copyright. <laughs> yeah, but that that, that was my take you. but that was my takeaway from 
the film with its theme of legacy and of course the Nazis trying to bring back the Third Reich and uh, I mean look the truth is is like anything else and it's the same thing we've been talking about a 23 23 year wait of anything it always means kind of to your point dealing not just with legacy but also blazing a new trail and I think that this movie does it really brilliantly in a way where it's like look we obviously know Lupin is a character that exists in a very specific time. He's been around since the seventies. Uh, I thought it was brilliant. Number one, that it was still set in the sixties. They didn't take it out of that era. And I think that that's actually one of the best parts about the movie is that it didn't get like a fully modernized update. Cause there is a modern version of Lupin that is exists right now dealing with like hackers and like a 21st century version of it. But there's something to be said about dealing with legacy of a character that's been around a long time, but still in that same time period that you're kind of used to him from. Mm -hmm. And really trying to also be like, look, we want you to understand where it comes from, why we appreciate it for what it is and pushing it to that like next level of, we want to keep doing this, but we also want to like love the thing that came before. And it's got such a big heart in the same way that Castle of Cagliostro does. And that's what sets this one apart from almost all the other ones is the heart underneath it. Because the entire relationship that Lupin has with Letitia is actually like really kind of sweet and really kind of beautiful. And the way that their storyline ends up tying together is really unique in a way that I was not anticipating. And I Mm -hmm. thought, I I don't want to dive too deep into spoilers for people who are going to discover it for the first time, but like that was kind of great in a way that I wasn't really anticipating because it got me a little misty eyed just in the way they tied it together. Well, the director did say on like on file saying like, yeah, I wanted to bring back that heart and passion that you see in Castle Cagliostro. Because like as much as I love Lupin the Third, a lot of those specials and films are not all that great. Or it's yeah. like they focus too much on the heist, and the heist is not all that interesting. Or the characters don't have a lot to do. Or like some characters get way more focus, and sometimes they just don't do the characters justice. And I've seen a ton of the specials and it's tough to get that balance right and I but it, it but but it does seem like sometimes the heart is not in the right place like the special for me that really shows the worst of the franchise is uh green versus red but mm-hmm. only because it's not about lupon it's about the like symbolicness of lupon and it's like the the film has dealing with clones and like, like there's a hundred lupons flying around and oh that just it, that just sounds messy Oh, it's a mess. And it's like, I, it, it doesn't look great. And like, it, uh, look, it's, it's I, a disappointment. I, I love this franchise dearly. I do. It, it was one of my first real, um, real deep dives and just like appreciations of anime. Because again, I was pretty young when it made its debut on Cartoon Network. Right. Young enough that I latched on and like really fell in love with it because you're 31. I'm about to turn 31. Like I, so you and I are about the same page, Cameron, as far as the timing goes. So, you know, we were both right there when the original version was brought over and, or at least the second of the original, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. But the point <laughs> being is that like, even with the movies and stuff, a lot of the sequels became kind of what it is cheap dime store storytelling which is fine that's kind of what the franchise is based off of right 
cheap yeah. dime store paperback storytelling. They're pulp serials. And that's fine. But it's always fun when it can do that, but be better. And like take it to that next level. And the first does that in spades. Yeah, no, it's like, that's why I like the specials that uh, the guy behind Redline uh, directed, which are based off of the, the woman named Fujiko Mine series. Mm. which are like Goemon's blood spray and then Jigen's gravestone and Fujiko yep. Mine's lie. They dive into the characters and make them more interesting because it's really easy to make Goemon the most boring character of the bunch because he's the quiet stoic samurai character. But the like original series and this film and the uh, some parts of the Miyazaki one do give him a little more personality like um like when they go for the actual treasure and they have to use Goemon's sword. Yes. And he's like, no, I'm not going to give it up. It's my sword. And then it's just like, he's hesitant of crossing the bridge. Like when they solve the puzzle, he doesn't want to go along because he wants his sword next to him. Oh, um, but I have to say, I am so happy that they did not try bring back any of the, the uncomfortableness of Fujiko Mine yes because she's still the bombshell but she's still but they bring back the playful relationship that she and lupin have even though half the time uh that relationship gets lupin screwed over (laughs) but um but i'm glad that like they didn't try to play up the sex appeal i mean yeah you see a cleavage shot or they just like play with the fact that she takes off her dress in front of him to put on a pilot outfit but they don't show like the like the fan service side of it. They just like show that, and then she's instantly in the pilot suit. And they do a good job bringing like the chemistry among the like the crew and such. Like um, I like when they're escaping with the diary, and uh, Jigen drives up with uh, Goemon in the car, and then uh, Fujiko jumps off the plane. The girl. Uh, the girl jumps off the plane and then Lupin's like, catch me. And then the car swerves to the side and he just falls flat like a pancake. Hey, we're heads were, our hands were full. <laughs> yeah, which that line was excellent. It, and I, I like that every character kind of got their moment and every character felt defined in a way. Like even for newcomers, you really got a sense of who every one of the characters were, even down to like, you guys are only ever in it for the money. Like you were, you totally abandoned me and that now you're back. Yeah, <laughs> like every single bit just felt very well done in the right way. Yeah, no, it, it's just a good, fun action adventure story. And I, yeah, I like that they each get to do something like one of the first puzzles in the in the treasure hunt. Uh, Jigen f- is the one to solve it. And then Goemon and then Fujiko and Lupin finish off the uh, the, the last challenge before they get to it. But um, I guess we kind of have to talk about the elephant in the room. The bad guys are Nazis. Mm. So uh, where should yeah. we start with this? Um, go for hold it. on, Mike. Um, so did anyone did anyone actually think that that Hitler in this universe was was still alive? Uh, first off, spoilers from here. Just beware. Uh, no, I don't think he was. I I was kind of amused that they were taking like um. Do you guys remember the Amazon show Hunters? Yeah. Um, I, I was like kind of amused that they were kind of taking that route because of the whole history of Nazis fleeing to Argentina. And I love that they played with that and then just flipped it on its head and then be like, no, 
he's still dead. You guys suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the truth of the matter is, is that uh, as far as the Nazis have always been concerned, they've always, for the most part, been a somewhat part of the Lupin franchise. Um, yeah. Even back into the TV show days, like they have come up across the Nazi regime trying to return and stuff like that. And I'll be honest, it doesn't bother me. I can see why it bothers people. But the truth is, is that no, no time like the present to remind people that Nazis are bad and we should be punching them in the face. <laughs> and like, I love that they're like simply put towards the end of the film when Lupin is fighting uh, David Bowie. Cause I can't remember the character's name off the top of yeah, my head. Yeah. I apologize. Um, but that character, when he, he says it straight up, he goes Nazis lose. And I, I kind of don't mind when a movie decides to take that sort of stance because, like, frankly speaking, I would not be shocked if the fifth Indiana Jones film scene, if it ever actually happens, has what's left of the Nazi regime and Indy fighting them one last time. Like, uh, wouldn't you almost expect, like, the last film of an Indiana Jones franchise where it's, like, Indy going out fighting Nazis one last time and punching them in the face? Oh, I yeah. can see that, yeah. I'm, I'm of the opinion that Indiana Jones works the best when they're fighting Nazis. So, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And again, like to the point of what we're talking about, remember, it's only like 1960. So the movie's set in the 60s. It's not too long. It's 20 years after the end of the war. Yeah, that's very, that's, that's pretty much true. And, and the, by the way, the character we're talking about, the David Bowie, David Lynch look like, uh, his name is Gerard. Gerard. Like, thank you. Um, And, um, what did y'all think about the dynamics between Leticia and Lambert, the scientist who was trying to bring back, who um, was teaming up with the Nazis to get the treasure and take that, take a, well, basically say screw the world and blow it up. <laughs> their, their relationship was interesting um, just from a story perspective, but it also kind of felt like a, like a very, a very toxic relationship. Like the, like right. e even even down to like the fact that her her name is is like basically the like she only has like one purpose to land there and that's to open the lock yeah no um and no it i thought i found their relationship a little predictable but um i thought it fit the story overall yeah i, I mean uh, and again to uh, kind of the point like it does feel a little bit uh, modern. A lot of her life has been gaslit by, you know, people above her power, not realizing the truth about her past and people lying to her and things like that. And I thought Letitia was actually a really great character who was kind of setting her own way. And one of the things that they were very smart about is she's not like a damsel in distress. Yeah. she She's really forging her own path and doing her own thing. And like, she is as much crucial to the bigger part of the story and like saving the day as Lupin is. Yeah, that's I, I almost been, I almost yeah. think she should have been like the like the like the film should have been mostly like entirely um, through her point of view. I think that I think that would have made for a little bit more compelling narrative. But I also get that we're here to see Lupin Lupin the Third. That, yeah. that's a thing i i mean like i think leticia is a better co-protagonist against lupon because that's always been a problem with lupon is that you come for the film you come for him and his gang but 
you but then it's like but they have to have some instigating points some ignite ignition points and unfortunately they're always kind of the weak the weaker end of things sometimes they're better like in the legend of i think it's called like the legend of the twilight gemini or something like that uh the female character uh character that lupon encounters is a little more interesting but they're always a little dime dime a dozen yeah. like damsels in distress and they don't have much and then the villains are also very much that i think that might be my only criticism is that the villain is not that interesting it's just like outside of a great design gerard is just i i don't know he's he, threatening he's another he's imposing he's another nazi villain i mean like the, let's just call a spade a spade yeah and I, it's almost better in a way as weird as this is going to sound don't make the nazi interesting just make his face punchable and we're good to go. Yeah, I see where I, you're coming from. I'm just saying. No, no, I, I agree. I think it's it's a tricky thing to like make work because you don't want to make them amusing or like them to be the, the scene stealers right. of the of the film. But when they're just it's kind of like sometimes it's the Marvel problem sometimes, or it's like in Aquaman where Ocean Master was the main f- threat even though uh black manta was the more interesting villain kind of thing and gerard yeah i just don't think he leaves that big of a an impression or at least from all the villains i've seen lupon fight he's a little better but not by far yeah you're not wrong and that's okay to me like i said just yeah uh, frankly speaking more just because it's a nazi but i would love to see look my hope is is that this movie was popular enough and did well enough for them that they decided to do more. I think that, well, from what I remember reading that it was a huge financial hit. So yeah, I'm, so, I'm looking at the box office right now and it looks like it made 1.6 or 1.16 billion uh, Zen yeah. and 11 million. Um, yeah, overall. Like, yeah. That's, well, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean like that, that, that's the thing with, uh, Japanese animation budgets it's kind of hard to find out how much they cost but they're never like Pixar or even Illumination money so um but I think I I think it was a hit from what I remember but that's but this was also early in January when the box office numbers were coming in so yeah look as long as is if it did well enough to warrant doing more because I would love for it to um, that gives us a chance to explore more with the characters and get more interesting villains after the fact. But my other thing is, is that we can't fall into the same pitfalls that this franchise has commonly fallen into. You need to make sure that whoever's making it, if you continue it, it stays to the vision of what you know Monkey Paw originally intended, but give it that heart that they've seemingly found in the greatest parts of this franchise. Like, make sure that when you're making it that you find those pieces and give it a reason to be don't just do it just to do it you know what i'm saying yeah no that's kind of like the big franchise film problem where it's just like they do it just because the franchise is popular and only a few franchise films are able to escape that and i think like the my hero academia films have been able to escape that uh trap because they actually tie into the main show like this the show will actually reference the films well most of the time franchise films just kind of like oh it's a self-contained story it doesn't matter whatever could have been useful for the main storyline will not show up from the films and whatever dragon ball z is the worst is the worst offender of that 
the Pokemon it's, movies were pretty bad about it too, but tor- after a little while, they started being like, I guess we need to reference some of it. Like, obviously, the Mewtwo uh, sequel was actually like a TV special itself. Yeah, no. I'd, and that's why I don't cover them. That's why I don't put a lot of them into my worst to best lists at the end of every year because they don't matter. And I don't like that. And yeah. Or at or at their worst, their franchise recap films, which right. are just the worst kind. Especially since the, this year, we also got Goblin Slayer, the Golden Crown, uh, Goblin Crown, and the first thirty minutes of that ninety-minute movie, well, quote unquote movie, is a recap of the first season, like a literal recap. They basically took the recap episode from Goblin Slayer and put it into the movie. And then it's it's like an hour long worth of content, which is why I'm so happy that at least Lupin's continuity doesn't matter. So I can just enjoy the the episodes no matter where uh, they are the the films, wherever they show up. And that's again, been like the brilliance of it versus when, again, you look at Pokemon and I hate to point at it again, but like it, it did matter in a way with Pokemon, like every one of those movies should have mattered to the bigger story. And then like, they would, kind of reference it but not really like it's very strange to me that the only one that made it a point to be like hey the pokemon movies matter was detective pikachu like yeah. that movie is a stealth sequel to me two strikes back yeah no it's just it's interesting how these go and then but yeah um anything else we want to talk about with lupon the third to first uh i just hope that we can convince people to watch it if you don't know what lupon is and, and this is the first time you ever heard people talk about it like i cannot recommend enough how much i want you guys to watch this i i have it in my top 10 films of the year and that's not changing like i was so wildly impressed with what they did i think that this is the future of the franchise in a lot of ways and it was really refreshing to see someone take a franchise that they appreciated and deal with it with care like the, it could have been so easy to just cash in and do a CGI movie that didn't look great and didn't really care about the franchise. And it was, you know, hey, it's the characters, you know, but in a story that didn't matter. But this is the first time in a long time that Lupin felt beloved by someone who wanted to make something special again. Yeah, no, I agree. It's in my, for animated films, it's in my top 10. It's at number six right now. And it's beyond, it's behind Onward, Over the Moon, Ride Your Wave, Soul, and Wolfwalkers. And it's, it's just a great, fun action adventure movie with a lot of heart, a lot of great jokes. Like I still get a huge kick out of like when they're trying to find out how to get to the location of the treasure. And then Lupin is just like, well, I got to do it. There's only <laughs> one person in the world who is hellbent on tra- finding me wherever I go. Yep. And then, then he got into like, Lupin, finally, you want to turn yourself in. And then they get their whole helicopter jacked. Yep. <laughs> that, that moment is one of the best in the entire movie. It, just everything about that. Oh, God. Poor Zenigata. Yeah. But at the same time, <laughs> anytime I get to hear Lupin, it just brings me so much joy. And then the See you later, Pops. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. Such a fantastic film. I can't wait. I want them to do more, and I hope this means they do more films instead of specials. And so. Real quick, one last thing. Can I just say how happy I was to hear Tony Oliver and the entire cast back again in the oh, hell yes. of these characters? They're the best. They they're are, the man. Be- 
that, that that's why people want them back and back. And again, Richard Epcar was like I said, when they made those recent specials was like, yeah, sure. I'll come back as Zenigata, but I don't like Zen. Well, he doesn't hate playing Zenigata. He just prefers Jigen because of course Jigen is Jigen. And he, he's <laughs> so perfect. Jigen. I, and I got to say, this is so random, but like when I was rewatching the first, you remember like everyone back in the day before Cowboy Bebop, was being turned live action everyone wanted keanu reeves to be in a live action cowboy bebop everyone always overlooks the perfect role for keanu reeves was always in a live action version of lupon he would he would have always been to me like if you look at any of the characters he's so clearly a jigen like he's so clearly that character look at him with the beard even yeah yeah. i I can see that now i could see that especially with the whole john wick series yeah he'd be perfect Okay, so uh, let's just do a quick little quest, uh, quit, uh, question. If you had to do a live-action Lupin, who would you cast as who? So mm. I'm, I'm going to have to, like, I'm assuming we're doing this as an American audience uh, version yeah, of and, it. Yeah, but it, yeah, if, you want, if you want, like, Japanese actors and such, you can, do, you can choose that. It's, it's whoever. It's hypothetical, even though the I've, only, seen, I've seen the yeah. Lupin, the live-action Lupin Ugh. films, and I'm not, not a fan of them, but... No, either am I. Yeah, but let's just say hypothetically, like for an American audience. So I'm gonna say choose? I'm gonna say for a live action American version because that's assuming uh, again. I mean, no, this is not a dig or anything, but if we're doing it that way, the person that has to be Lupin to me, and this is out of the box casting a little bit, is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Hmm. I, I can see I, that. I can see that. I, I think he has the right amount of charm. And also, like, if you've seen The Night Before, he has he still has that right amount of comedic timing that he had since Third Rock from the Sun. The dude is great. And I think he can really ride that line between, like, gentleman thief, but kind of a buffoon. Would you want him to try mm-hmm. to em- emulate Tony Oliver's take on the voice? Or would you rather him try to just find his own Ver, uh, version of the character i think, he, I think can, he can bring his own yeah his own voice to uh the character yeah I, because, you can have the characteristics without doing the voice yeah i think so because it, it's kind of like will forte trying to be shaggy and it's just like right. uh you're i know you're trying but you're not doing a good job um okay so who would you do as goemon because we already done jigen we we all kind of agree with keanu reeves so who would be goemon um Tony Jaa. I like that. It's not I like bad. that. Now, this is a tough one because you kind of have to have a bombshell, but also just awesome character for Fujiko. I kind of think Stephanie Beatrice, but... Ooh, that's not uh, bad. Hmm. That, that, it, it's so tough because Fujiko kind of is like the most frustrating character to deal with depending on which incarnation because sometimes they make they do her well or, or sometimes they just kind of cheaply play with her for fan service which is never fun. Sophia Batella would be a very interesting choice for that character. Ooh. I I like that a lot. I uh, like that too. It, it gives her more of like a um um like a, a more exotic yeah. But it, she could be the bombshell, but she can also be dangerous, which is something I think that the best versions of Fujiko have is she's a little bit dangerous. And I thought that this movie actually did that really well, too. Like, she's conniving in the right ways, you know, just to stay yeah. a step ahead of everyone around her. But Sophia Batella has always kind of had that as an actress. 
and I think she'd crush in a role like that. I just thought of another one. Um, Gemma Chan. Ooh, that's good too. Oh yeah. Now for Zenigata, the hammiest of the char- characters in the fa- in the franchise, who I, would you choose? There, there's only one answer for this, in my opinion, and that's Bill Hader. Oh, I'd love that. But even if, even though we'd have to kind of work around the whitewashing part of that, but uh, of course. Uh, but again, we're we're saying specifically if we're doing an American adaptation, I'm not trying to whitewash it. Like, okay, okay, but, yeah. No, I'm just making sure. Just like, just yeah. so anyone, everyone's clear. We're not yeah. trying to whitewash. We're just no, 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 that, no. Like, oh, I'm doing God. this as one of those. Uh, you know that the American audience is going to be looked at if you're doing an American adaptation to try to get the white actor or like the american actor yeah and I, let's just I say they're to... let's say yeah. they're pulling an edge of tomorrow where they're just right. taking the base idea of the manga and just ripping everything out but keeping the ba- the foundation of it 100 percent. and so i think that's my my go-to in that idea is bill Hader. i think bill Hader would be a good choice for that i i agree with a lot of this i'm i'm already picturing in my head him say him screaming lupon <laughs> it, it, you just see him being the frustrated dude who's like i'm so close to finally winning only to lose every time okay then i i think that's a pretty fun cast for an americanized version so yeah i i think let's move on so of course we all highly recommend lupon the third and the first yep yes. it, it just broke my uh my top 10 for the year so yeah. i definitely recommend you all check this out I know. I I could really we could just break down the entire film and just talk about every little bit, every joke, every line, every sequence. Like I didn't even I wanted to talk about the skydiving sequence, but I didn't re- but I didn't want to spoil too much. I just love when one of the characters is falling and Lupin Lupin shows up right behind like right by them and just kind of does like a joyful spin around. It's like, oh yeah, hey, hey, how you doing? We're now falling out of the sky with no parachutes. Yep. <laughs> All right, so I think let's move on to the probably the much more well-known film of the bunch of our episode tonight. Soul, the new film by Pete Doctor and Kemp Powers. So, where to start? Let's start with overall thoughts. PJ, you first. So, I went into this, you know, as any Pixar film, where are we going to land on, like, in the pantheon of everything Pixar does, what are they about to deliver? Because they, they're they the best at delivering at a very, very high level. Um, every, every once in a while, there's a stumble. But for the most part, I'd say that none of their films are completely throwaway. And I, I ended up being so blown away by everything that Soul is that I think that ultimately this may be Pixar's magnum opus of the last 25, 30 years in a way that I wasn't expecting. I, I, it's not my favorite, but I think it technically and storytelling wise may be their best film. Hmm. I agree. I think for at least for 2020, it's my second favorite animated film of the year. And I'll get into why Wolf Walkers has topped it. But I will say, I think this is the best Pixar film since, uh, man, maybe since Toy Story 3. Um, I mean, I love Coco and Toy Story 4, but I think, oh, wait, no. It's the best one since Inside Out. At there least. we go. Um, yeah, there we go. I was like, wait a minute. 
another I mean, great Pixar film came through. <laughs> and, that time I mean, to be to be totally fair, these are clearly spiritual, you know, sequels of sorts and spiritual films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I uh, well, first off, I got to see this uh, via a screener beforehand before its release, and I was so happy my screener request went through and i got it like a week before the film released and yeah it's at least in my top five for pixar and i just you know i I know it's like of course people shouldn't be loyal and hyped because of the brand and whatnot but anytime pete doctor is going to work on a movie i'm going to be excited and i hope in general like for kemp powers the director of the upcoming one night in miami um that he comes back for animation because i'd love to see him like it, it with his own solo director uh film directed film but um that's just me mike what about you um so this movie for for 2020 shot up to number one on my list um we'll we'll talk about soul versus wolf walkers uh later but for now as as far as as far as it's um, how I how I compare it to Pixar, I think I think it's clearly their most ambitious work, um, solely by its animation. I think I think it's Pete Doctor's. I think it might be Pete Doctor's most mature film since Inside Out and Up, and I think a a lot of a lot of what makes this film work are the new the newer elements that we haven't seen from a pixar film such as um all of kemp powers contributions from both the script and co-directing as well as this is the first to my knowledge the first animated feature that trent reznor and atticus ross um composed the music for right so yeah the, for a lot of the new elements, I think those are what make this stand out among among the rest of Pixar's uh, library. Yeah, this is a like the the best part about Pixar is that their films can be approached by kids, but they're really for everyone, and they don't talk down to you as an audience member. They treat you with probably the utmost respect out of any animation studio. And it's just, it's so good. And now I'll, um, what, I'll I, say real quick so, to yeah. piggyback that it's so amazing that they've managed to do that time and again, but I actually think this may be their first film made for adults that kids might enjoy, not the other way around where it's a family film aimed at both sides. Yeah, no, it's, I kind of joked with a few coworkers of mine and a few friends saying like, I don't know how kids will react to this, but I do think they should absolutely see it. But I can understand the hard convincing argument of like, or pitch of like, hey, son, who's like five, you want to watch a movie about existentialist crisis? Right. (laughs) But um, let's jump into the story a little. So uh, for anyone who may, who probably doesn't know about this film, I don't know why you wouldn't, but you know, still. Uh, we follow Joe Gardner, a middle school music teacher who feels just kind of unfulfilled, stuck in life 
until one night he or one day he gets a call from an old class uh, student of his about an audition to be the new piano player for a very famous um jazz musician who's voiced by angela bassett um and he nails the audition and we'll, we'll talk about the music in a second but the music is great um and he gets the audition and as he's calling uh someone and saying like yeah i got the gig it's amazing he unfortunately falls down a manhole and dies <laughs> and he ends up in the great well not the great beyond but kind of like the entry point to it and of course kind of in denial that he died he finds he let's just say he scatters he's like he's panicking he's freaked out um and then uh he ends up in an area called basically the before life sorry where like your soul and then you're shaped and then thrown down on the earth and he tries to find a way to get back there and runs into a soul who's been there for a very long time named 22 voiced by tina fey and they make a deal essentially like if i can find your spark which is what every soul tries to find tries to get before going to earth and i'll take your spark and get myself back to earth and then shenanigans ensue so where should we start with this because this is obviously pixar's it like very mature film it's it's like it's a very philosophical film also it's kind of very oh yeah, yeah i i i can't well i it's not that i can't find a starting point it's where to start <laughs> that, well, that's the problem it's interesting because you know to the point earlier um obviously pete doctor also did um inside out which is kind of spiritually almost a prequel to this because in a way that's the the more childlike version of the story it's trying to tell, but that's in the early part of your life when you're still trying to figure yourself out. Right. Mm -hmm. And so inside out is about that time in your life when you still, you you're coming into your own, you're coming into these changes as a teenager, what you're dealing with, you've been like pulled out of your life to kind of force a new one. This is what happens later in your life. When you feel like you've hit a rut, you're stuck. You don't, feel like you're doing the thing you're doing and you've lost that sight and will to live and the fact that they decided to make a movie that's legitimately about like the midlife crisis and forgetting what it means to be alive and what it also means to like kind of cope with the idea that no matter what you do like death is almost inevitable is yeah. kind of quite the swing that i was not expecting from them and that's what I love about it. Yes. It goes out there. It's like, I have to, I see a lot of the, the worst side of the animation fandom because this, that's what I tackle. I tackle animation. And a big problem is that there's always a, a subset of people who are like, I want my animated films to take it, take themselves seriously. I want them to be quote unquote grown up for me. Well, you find you got yeah, it it's exactly that this is it yeah and then sometimes and of course sometimes they're like even when they get what they want they're like well this isn't what i specifically wanted and it's like oh come the freak on come on fandom is uh notorious for that yeah i i hate it i hate it i hate it i hate it but i love this movie and just kind of where it goes exactly like 
I love the counts the spirit counselor Jerry's and uh Terry. <laughs> Jerry oh, and Terry are some of the best. They are, I love that they take like they say they take a form that can be understandable, but they're still pretty out there because and I I have the art book for it and they kind of talked about how they're inspired by wire statues. And I have to say those counselors must have been a pain in the neck to try to figure out how they work because they're just like one continuous line and they're flat and while everyone else is cgi and three like three dimensional models and whatnot i was always amazed by how they were able to make that work and i love like the visuals that they use where they like okay, you five will be uh, curious. So they'll send them through the, and all like the different personality buildings and that before parts. And I, I, lo I love how they approach this because it's like everyone has a certain personality, but then they have a spark that doesn't define them, but it just, it's what, it, what drives them. It's what makes them say like, I'm ready to live. And this is what's going to spark, drive that spark for like forward and such and then i mean like what do you what do you all think about like how they handle some of these topics i i, I think they do a really nice job of um like kind of, kind of like how inside out um does a good job of sort of like um like vi visual visualizing the like the questions that that we all ask ourselves yeah. like 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 how how did we end up with with like this personality or or like what 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 it, what really is it that dri that drives us to wake up every morning yeah and um and i also just like some of the ideas like with lost souls or it's like souls that like get too wound up in what they do for a living mm -hmm. and i also love like how they they visualize like being in the quote-unquote the zone is this, this might be this might be like one of the first um movies i've seen like pr pretty accurately um describe describe that feeling yes yeah and like i i really love how they handle the lost soul stuff because sometimes that stress of what you do can sometimes get the better of you and you can be stuck in that rut i love that they i love that they show the example of that as being a uh what was it not a uh that you know they take care they find those uh gurus without borders and they find uh that oh they they help a hedge fund manager <laughs> that the the hedge fund manager joke is one of the best jokes in the entire movie in yeah. regards to we all know what it's like to be at a dead-end job that pisses us off and that we're just slaving away at to survive and honestly kind of the point of this movie more than anything is that we're all stuck in this situation where day by day we feel like we're slaving away and we're forgetting what it's like to live and the fact that this movie is willing to go out on a limb and be like you need to remember what it actually feels like to live is incredible to me it's so mature for yes for a disney film for a pixar film for for something that like like before uh pete doctor became the head of pixar someone said yeah sure we'll let you do this and 
it, it's it's very impressive and i also like love some of the jokes that come with it like when they when they find when uh joe comes across like the zone area where everyone's in the zone and whatnot and 22 screws up uh a a play actress oh, i'm forgetting a line a tattoo artist messing up and i just love the little oops <laughs> and then uh of course at, like even at, like my sister who's not into sports got the joke of like oh i love that i love this one i've been messing with their team for decades and gets another loss for the basketball the knicks bas- basketball team <laughs> that, that, that might have been the hardest the hardest that i've laughed at a at a visual gag that was uh something that i felt on a fucking like personal level in just i was not prepared and it hit so hard in the best way and i was like holy shit i love this so much like and i know that um as far as we're talking about like kemp wrote that joke he can't he was like i'm a huge dicks fan and i wrote that joke as for a reason like come on now like how do i not that's my team like you gotta be able to make a little bit of a joke for it you know no a true fan it has a sense of humor about itself that's what mike and i say all the time we said this about the star wars christmas special it's a special that was made for fans who have a sense of humor dude that special is so cute by the way oh god like isn't just trying to lift it up the x-wing up with the force like trying it's like and then Yoda is basically saying there, there's no room for participation trophies. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, back to Soul. Um, and I love, I love all the little gags and jokes. Like uh, when Joe asks where he is, he's like, "Is this heaven? No, it's not." Well, is it H E double hockey sticks? And then all the little souls say, <laughs> hell, "Hell, hell, hell, hell." <laughs> and I think that was their one way to get away. To like, okay, fine. That's a, if we're going to say hell, we'll say it all at once. We'll like say it as many times as we can in this one spot. Or it's like when they're going through that, uh, that, uh, what the office style, like PSA, like motivation video. It's just like here at, at the great beyond, like the great before we make their souls are, uh, you know, like shaped and ready to go. And all the souls are like, I'm, I'm okay. like a standoffish wallflower. And then there's like, I'm a egomaniac. <laughs> or like when later on before Terry goes down to earth to get Joe and 22, and we'll get to that in a second, um, where it's like, okay, you all will be curious and you all will be self-loathing or self-absorbed. And then one of the Jerry's is like, we should stop sending so many through that one, <laughs> which I, I love that. First that all, was hilarious. First off, the Jerry's have probably some of the best casting out of any Pixar film. Like I, I think well, this casting for this whole film is so good, and I mean, there's one part that's gonna be definitely be like a little awkward to talk about, but we'll we'll get to that. But like, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to bring up the uh, the uh, the spirit count the counselors. Um, I got you. Are, um, yeah. we have yeah. Richard I um Ioetti, um. Alice Braga, West Studi, um, Fortune Feimster, and Zenobia Shroff. And they're all named Jerry. Yeah, well, except for for Terry. (laughs) First of all, I I love that little gag. They're all named Jerry's, but then there's just the one Terry. And 
I, I love like they're like they're not they're soul they're not dead souls they're just like it's that out of body experience and they take that and first of all I love Graham Norton as Moonwind like I was trying I was curious about, like who is that and then he I was up, doing his best Pat Oswalt that I've ever heard it's it yeah. sounded like a mix of like Pat Oswalt and Dan Stevens at, yes. at some points yes and um I saw a tweet the other day like. I think yesterday or something saying like, can we get Graham Norton and everything and not let James Corden get it, get in everything. And I was like, yeah, let's make it to where Graham Norton is in everything instead of James Corden. Um, but, I, um, but yeah, let, I'm going to go through some of these cat, the cast for this. So like Jamie Foxx says, Joe, I, I like Jamie Foxx as an actor. I know sometimes he hits a few clunky roles, but I, I think he he was great. I thought he brought like that's the thing about Pixar films and Disney's animation film casting that I like. They know how to cast the right actors for the right parts. Yeah, and yes. I mean we'll talk about Tina Fey in a second, but I did like her in the role, and um, and I like Rachel House as Terry, and uh, of course the, the other uh, spirit guidance counselors. Um, I like Felicia Rashad as uh, Joe's mom. Uh, Liba and I liked uh, Donnell Rawlings as Dez the barber which that barber scene is probably my favorite scene out of that entire movie I could I could have spent an entire movie just in that in that barbershop and Uh, I'm happy to tell you guys there are three movies called barbershop you enjoyed that scene (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah Um, the third the third barbershop movie I think is my favorite uh, it's mine too. I, I'm actually, I like, I'm kind of half joking, but I, I mean, that is arguably one of my favorite um, comedy franchises. So if you guys have never seen it, I do recommend it. I think those films are actually really great. Yeah, yeah, no, um, but I just love seeing Donnell Rawlings, who's usually like playing, like doing comedic roles, have a more grounded character to play with. Even though Des does have some of the better lines of like the side characters, and and I saw this, and I think like even though I'm a white guy saying this, I do love how they, this film just has this like black people just being normal, regular people. They're not trying to cart cartoonize, like characterize them. They're just, they're letting people like black people be people. You know what I mean? Like they're not trying to, they, they like the dialogue doesn't try to flavor their dialogue or, you know, like, you know, like when you watch a bad mood, like, like movie with a black cast, but it was obviously written by white people kind yep. of thing. Yep. It's like, none of that was here. And I think Kim Powers made sure of that because it is like, everything felt so natural and flowing to the dialogue. There wasn't trying, they weren't trying to stereotype anyone or, which is something like, I know Pixar wasn't going to let that happen, but you know, like you always kind of worry about that in some, some ways. I mean, the truth is, is like making the fact that they had um, Kemp Powers as part of the directorial team went a long way, as well as one of the writers, you know? Yeah. And uh, so anyway, with the back to casting, uh, Amir Khalib or Questlove as Curly, which, like I said, I just love the casting for all this. Angela Bassett as Dorothea Williams. Um, And man, I love seeing Angela Bassett back in like everything. She's so good. And, Agreed. Uh, Melba, one of the w- women that work at Liba's uh, uh, clothing store, uh, voiced by Margot Hall, and Paul, voiced by David Diggs, which 
I'm a huge David Diggs fan. If it, put him in, put, put him in everything, especially. And again, see Blind Spotting. It's one of the best films from the last decade. Agreed. Uh, Lulu, voiced by Rashi- Rodessa Jones. Um, uh, Sakina Jaffrey was the doctor that was in the room where uh, Joe was at. Um, Caleb Grant was the hedge fund manager. Um, let's see, Laura Mooney was the therapy cat lady. I mean, yeah, like Peggy Flood was uh, the little manager woman that Moonwin worked for. Uh, Zenobia Shroff, June Squibb, uh, Janine Tirado, Kathy Cavadini, uh, Doris Burke, uh, Dorian Laquette, uh, Marcus Shelby, just a lot of people. And um, I'm trying to find the actress who played the 12-year-old that Joe was mentoring with the, the one who had played trombone. Right. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, but anyway, and I apologize. I wish I put down who she was. Um, Connie is Kathy uh, Cavadini. Yep, that's the one. She does uh, Connie, Melba, Lulu, the doctor, hedge fund manager, therapy cat lady, Marge, dance star, principal Aereo, and Dreamwind. Awesome. Um, something I should point out because people have been saying that. Uh, this is Pixar's first film without John Ratzenberger. I was about to bring that up, actually, and that's yeah. not true. He yep. he is at, he has an uncredited role as the off-screen voice in Joe's Memories. Really? Okay, I was trying to find because I looked all around and I thought he was like the guy they bump into, in in the uh, in the subway, like the first time when they go in, go into the subway train. But I but that's interesting because I was trying I was trying to find him and then I was like, oh my gosh, he's not in there. It's like watching uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and realizing Sam Jackson's not in it, right? But um, um, but I also liked uh, one little cameo I liked was Cody Chestnut as the singer with the guitar in the subway station. Like that song that he sings is so good. I downloaded it like the moment I found out what who it was and who it and when the soundtrack was available. It's just great and um. I also like in terms of the writing, I think this might have some of Pixar's best jokes and some of their darkest jokes. When Paul gets pulled into the, like, I guess the afterlife by Terry, that is one of the scariest, darkest, most hilarious jokes. What yeah. one that you, you wouldn't think that Pixar would make in like a million years? Yes. No, and. I understand that there may be some implications about him get like just some just some comments I've noticed say there might be some unfortunate implications about what happened with him, but um, but I but it was just like I take it as like Terry was like thinking in a very wily coyote situation because he was thinking Joe was coming down that way and then it just happened to be someone else, but um, but I understand some of the complaints about that um. But um, I, I also love the joke when, uh, so spoilers, if you haven't seen it, um, when Joe and 22 get back into the bot and into the real world and Joe ends up in the cat's body while 22 ends up in Joe's body. And I love, and at first I thought the joke was like, oh, cats don't have souls. And then they do that cutaway gag with the cat soul on the conveyor belt. <laughs> that was both brilliant and so sad. Yeah. <laughs> 
but apparently the soul gets back into the cat's body later on like uh it must i mean that makes sense obviously terry and all of them must have reversed everything yeah um which was kind of interesting because they're like i was just like i just assumed that's what happened and um but and i love like when joe of like constantly avoids death until he falls into the manhole cover it's like he avoids the banana peels he avoids the tax on the ground he avoids getting hit by a bunch of cars and like it's it's really fun and or it's very funny and no and i I love like when uh terry gets the gets the trophy and it's like and here for uh (laughs) an award for amazement is terry who requested this trophy yeah yeah, (laughs) who said that we had to give him this trophy yeah and i love terry might have some of the better punchline jokes like when uh near the end when he's uh or or when terry is going through the calculus uh thing and then it's like oh wait a minute the numbers and then uh jerry b uh, richard aoe's character comes in. he's like oh hey terry oh my gosh what's that over there you gotta look at it right now <laughs> and i and also like dez's lines from the barbershop where it's just like he's like oh, man you gotta sit down man you didn't put in an appointment and then they see joe's hair situation and he's like oh man this is an emergency and the guy's like no oh, wait a minute i've been waiting here well you can go to that chair and like his chair is always open and the guy's like i'll wait <laughs> that that joke straight up reminded me of uh barbershop because barbershop has like a very similar joke about people coming in needing a haircut like right away and then they look at cedric the entertainer and they're like no we're good we'll wait yeah <laughs> so um i think it's kind of time we talk about a little sequence and story beat that i think understandably has some people kind of mixed on how it's handled so like we said, Joe and 22 accidentally end up back on Earth and 22 ends up in Joe's body, whereas Joe ends up in the cat's body. And even though a lot of the jokes with the cats, like when the cat jumps off the hospital bed and it's just that plop, um, or like when they're back in Joe's apartment and Joe's just like, man, okay, we got to get get dressed, clean up. And then he walks into the sunlight and he's like, oh man. And he plops over <laughs> into the sun. Or like when the phone, phone is going off, it just... And they, like because you know cats don't have thumbs unless they're uh, polydactyl, um, just play, with playing with the, playing with it and like, but yeah, let's talk about this. How did y'all think they handled the whole body swap thing and some of the maybe or not not maybe some of the unfortunate things that come with it? I think they did. They did the best they could to keep the focus of the situation on oh no i'm just not in my body or they they tried to keep um the situation as as neutral as possible without without really exploring the implications because that's what a a few critic friends of mine are talking about and some people on like film groups are talking about is that like Tina Fey is inside the black character's body. And even though like in universe, they hear Joe's voice, the audience hears Tina's voice. My only thing is, is, and I mean, I I can't obviously like, it's going to sound weird because obviously like I'm a white person who has seen himself portrayed in things his entire life. but like they go out of their way to make it a point that the reason 22 chose that voice is because it's the most annoying like 22 is both genderless and sexless 
but that's a, there is yeah. a, there is the implication obviously because it is a white woman voicing the character that it is inherently problematic and it, it's I see both sides of the argument and I don't I, it's hard to want to take a side on either one because you don't want to say I think that obviously the movie goes out of its way to say this is you know the movie in the universe says that obviously there's no sex or gender for this character yeah that's a smart thing like does uh, Pixar subtly introduces its first kind of like set of non-binary characters yes. with the soul with the souls but I do understand that like for a decent chunk of the movie, we hear Tina Fey's voice coming out of Joe's body. And I think without absolutely recasting anything, but I, I will say a few recasting to suggestions if they ever did do it, but which they won't. But a simple fix could have been is if they just let Jamie Foxx do a few more voices for the scenes. Because on one hand, it was smart to let Jamie Foxx's voice be the one that comes out when they're, when, joe is talking to his mom right because that's a that's a huge important emotional scene oh definitely but i understand how that's still uncomfortable and even though it's like it it's and i'm not saying this as a hater on tina fey i think this is probably my one of my favorite tina fey performances because she's actually doing something else that's not just like a liz lemon uh take um and but i I do agree that they could have maybe had Joe, like Jamie Foxx's voice a little more um, heard than Tina's and maybe, or like, because like the whole body swap thing is important to the story because it's for Joe to find his, like to learn about what drives people through life from a different perspective. Well, it's also, like an out of body, well, a literal out of body experience. I was also going to say like the point, the big part of it is that it's, it's a wonderful life, right? Yeah. Like, if you really think about it, Joe is be being forced to see his life actually being enjoyed by someone for once because he's thrown so much of his life away, yeah, in no, his it's opinion. Like, yeah, no, uh, and, like, the whole barbershop scene is important because you find out Des was like, man, I wanted to be a veterinarian at first, but then my daughter got sick, and, well, uh, barber school was cheaper than veterinary school, and then 22 is like well wait a minute so now you're a barber that sucks you must be and like you're sad sad now and it's like no i'm i'm as happy as a clam and it, it is just like because just personally for me i was in that like i'm lost like lost soul kind of point in life i was like that for a few years until i found a part-time like this was after i got laid off from these bad qa testing gigs and, and, and then I just kind of uh, freelanced a little bit, took up writing for a website that I liked the people. I didn't like the people who ran the website. I liked the co-writers the co and such. Um, and um, and I, I felt lost. And then I found a new spark in life by finding a great part-time job that I love. And I love the people working there. And now it's like, I'm like, I found my way of living again and that's what i love about that barbershop scene it's like just because my dream of becoming a veterinarian stopped doesn't mean i stopped living i found a new career and i love it and that that's the importance of it of like the body swap thing but i think if they could have maybe had more like i said more jamie fox less tina fey i think they could have easily fixed that without having to think about 
like recasting, like maybe had like Rashida Jones or something or, or, t- or Tiffany Haddish or like Tiffany Haddish, because like I said, it, it, it's a, it's a little awkward, which is why I understand some people. And a lot of my, uh, like not everyone is bothered by this, but I understand why people are bothered by it. It's like back when, uh, 2018, when Isle of Dogs came out, I love that movie but I understand some of the more cultural complaints about it. It's, and that's how I feel about this, not controversy, but just a debate about the story beat and how they handle it. Because the, the, the story, the body swap was handled great. It has a lot of great moments, a lot of great jokes. And, but I understand why people have an issue with it. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, yeah. I, I, I really can't, again, like, we all look at things the way we look at things. And I, I obviously cannot speak for people who feel how they feel. And I thought Pixar did a pretty good job trying to ride the line of doing it smartly without yeah. uh, totally, you know, bastardizing uh, an entire group of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard to be like i i because i think they did a really good job writing that line but i also have i do respect the people who don't necessarily feel like it worked and that's okay yeah no it's it's because it's the whole debate that has kind of cropped up i think like maybe for two years now about like why can't black characters just stay black characters it's like princess and a frog the black princess turns into a frog or spies in disguise will smith gets turned into a pigeon for a majority of the film and to its credit you do see joe as a human there's just that little caveat right or like it's probably like a good maybe 60 70 percent of the film you see joe's human form but a part of that 60 70 percent is still like but tina Fey's character is in it and at first i was saying like oh yeah the non-binary uh definite like identities for souls are like kind of helps curve that a little but yeah but still i get it and it just recently like these past few days there's been like a super hyperbolic and toxic landscape of film discussion on twitter which has been just it's been insufferable and i feel bad for anyone because it's like oh you don't like it well you deserve to die and whatever and it's just like oh my gosh people put the haterade down take a chill pill and just calm the bloody heck down. The internet has lost sight of what it means to actually have general conversation about things. No, and it's like, it's all black and white to them. And it's super frustrating. It is so frustrating because th- that's because when I got saw this before everyone else got to see this, I was anticipating like a good discussion with some of my the critic peers on Twitter and friends on Facebook. I even talked to one of my critic friends through Facebook to say, ask for her perspective on it and yeah it's like it like and it's like when i kept it self-contained i found the discussions to be helpful but just going on twitter it was just a train wreck and i felt bad for everyone who one who got harassed by just idiots on there and but that's enough about that that's i just wanted to have a calm discussion about this sequence because beyond that though let's move on though um i think like how do you all feel about the third act and like the ending overall i thought the ending 
on, on the one hand, the end, the ending might come off a little, a little bit cheap in that it's, it seems like Joe, Joe getting his life back seems a little, a little more on the kid friendly side where a more powerful ending could have been um, Joe just accepting, accepting his fate and, and like is ready to go to the great beyond. But I also see like the benefit of the more optimistic ending and letting him have a second chance at life. I wasn't too bothered by the ending, to be honest. I liked the final act conflict of just Joe facing 22 as a lost soul and just like realizing how toxic he was saying like, you're only liking this because it's my body and it's my life. And it's like, no, it's not. And I actually didn't mind Joe getting a second chance because it's still, I don't think it takes away from anything. It's, it's not like how I've had issues with like how comic books handle death and whatnot, where it's just like, where they, they kill them. They let them stay dead for a few issues, issues, and then find some convoluted way to bring them back to life. I like that Joe gets a second chance. He understands that like what you do does not define you. Let's and, also be very clear that the idea that people are already upset, right? A little bit about the fact that Tina Fey is 22 in yeah. the way that it, and imagine the idea that Joe sacrifices his soul for someone who's white and how that would have looked. Yeah. That's, that's I, a good point. Yeah. yeah I th- so I think, yeah, I, I think that it was, I wish that the ending was a little bit longer. I would have liked to see a little bit more of Joe's time returning to it, but I think it's like a very beautiful ending and like the ending that it deserved, or at least Joe, I should say deserved. Yeah. My only little nitpick about the ending is I wish like they would cut to like an older Joe that meets 22, but that's just me kind of liking the corniness of it all. It, it no, this, this ending reminds me of how Porco Rosso ends where everyone's fine. They all live. And then they kind of keep on the ambiguous side. If Porco returned as a human instead right. of like the pig man, um, and like at first I remember seeing, I was like, ah, well, I don't know. But then I thought about it and it's like, no, I'm pretty happy. Like, I think this ending didn't or shouldn't need to have been like ambi- too ambiguous or too one way or another. Like it, the film's already pretty mature as it is. I think keeping him dead would have not been as great. No, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. and I, But I also see where Mike is coming from in a way because there's something also to be said about the idea of a movie where at the end the character accepts like maybe he actually did live a better life than he originally thought. And like he saw that and coming to terms with that, you know, like there, there's a lot of ways that it could have been handled. But I think that arguably there's something very beautiful about a, someone getting a second chance because not everyone gets a second chance. Yeah, and like I, I think it was all pretty good. Now, um, we didn't really get to talk about this, but let's talk about the presentation. Let's talk about the animation and the music. I, I really want to talk about um, the, the score. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, this is uh, the first time that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have... Uh, composed music for an animated film and like com- combine that with uh john baptiste um who did the like 
the jazz arrangements it 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 works like perfectly for the world that they that they created yeah no the music is so good especially all the piano uh sequences with joe and the uh the trumpet uh sex scene or the uh the guitarist in the subway and it's just it's probably my favorite soundtrack of the year. I'd have to kind of think about it, but I, it's definitely up there. And I loved the ending song that I think it's called like, we'll be all right or something. Um, mm-hmm. And no, it's no, I, I think Mike, you said it perfectly about the soundtrack and it is just kind of amusing to see uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of nine inch nails. I know you, <laughs> Like if if you told me about a decade ago that that they'd be working on a Pixar film, like like even 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 before they signed on to um, David Fincher's The Social Network, I never would have expected. Um, I would never would have expected Nine Inch Nails associated with with film score. That's like if the main singer of System of a Down did a Disney movie. <laughs> Boy, that would be surreal. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah and just the jazz sequences um like in the club we're all very we're all just beautiful and uh pj what did you think about the score this score is excellent i'm a big fan of atticus and um atticus and trent like i've listened to nine inch nails for a long time but i think that they're jumping to feature film scoring obviously with fincher and the social network and girl with the dragon tattoo and so on and so forth like they've been crushing it the last just over a decade now you know and to see them getting into something like this it gave the uh, the afterlife a very otherworldly feel in the yeah, right way yeah it was a very ethereal soundtrack yeah it, remind, it reminds me a little bit of the like the soundtrack for uh a monster calls in that regards right yeah um and i i just love that sequence when joe enters the zone on his piano and just Oh, it's just beautiful. It is. And I'm actually listening to it right now too. Like as we're podcasting, I've been listening to it in the background because it just plays well. And um, John, the the jazz music by John Batisti, uh, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. Yeah, it's so great too. And that I just love their love for jazz music in this because I I'm a big fan of jazz. Yeah. No, this this film goes from like top to bottom exploring black culture just really well and very respectfully something something else we have we haven't really addressed is that this is a great new york film i i was about to bring that up it absolutely is it is an incredible new york film like it gets that idea of being the new yorker and like what life is like in that um i think that moment when they come out of the hospital and 22 kind of is on earth for the first time and you're dropped into the middle of new york like the idea of how overwhelming that could feel but also that that look on her face or their face or it you know yeah 22's face yeah when they have pizza for the first time yeah oh my god dude yeah no i like i haven't been to new york but it captures from what i've seen of new york just like it like it's busy but it's lively and 
it's a little chaotic, but there's a rhythm to that chaos. Yes. And I don't care if people don't care for this joke. I love the little pizza rat cameo. (laughs) I thought that like, is there people who don't like that joke? No, I don't know, but I I can, I can understand if some people being like, Oh, it's a reference, but I love that little joke of Joe when he's in the cat's body being in the pizza and he runs into the pizza, the pizza rats. I mean, that's like a real New York thing though, man. Like I see rats in the city every time I'm there, like munching on pizza and like going into trash bags and stuff. Like that's a real thing. Yeah, I know. I, I, it's, it was just so cute and I loved it. And, and, but it's like, it just cat like it's probably one of the best yeah like y'all said it's probably the one of the best films to capture what new york is all about and it's 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 a great little hot pot of a city of cultures and di- different kinds of people there and um, the arts golly the, the animation is just it's so stupidly amazing how far cgi animation has come for pixar from 25 years ago just it's amazing to see them go from having to work with toys and bugs to get around the texture issue to 2007 to finally cracking that code of how to work with how to make human models interesting and then going into like 25 like 2009 to like 2015 being like wow they're getting photorealism down and i like the human designs for the film and that that's always something that i think pixar and disney are really good at they're good at finding good human designs i think other companies are starting to catch up i think something some studios like dreamworks kind of struggle depending on what movie they're making but pixar finds real uh, ways for very appealing designs and it's like it's all varied and i've se- i saw a lot of uh like black critics and friends being like sharing po- like pictures around of like Dez and Curly and uh, Dorothea Williams because they're like, oh my gosh, they got the hair right. And that was like a huge thing that I, if you watch the, the documentary series Inside Pixar, that was a thing that uh, Kim Powers really wanted uh, d- like done well was just how to get the designs down, how to have proper representation and such and man the lighting in this movie just like the ethereal look of the before times yes. like era to the they like dimly lit uh jazz clubs and i need to give a shout out to um bradford young who apparently was the lighting consultant on the oh, film wow. and like it, it it just it just makes so so much sense um Looking, looking at, you know, the, like the way that they compose the um, in the zone moment. Yes, absolutely. It was like a, it was like a moment out of Fantasia in some ways. Just, um, no, it's just, it's such a pretty movie, and it's like you get the like the soft hues of like the before, like kind of like the out of uh, focus uh, areas, and I like how they handle souls. Like I think they mm-hmm. give them; they're very distinct looking, and I I love the whole sequence of twenty two dealing with a bunch of different soul mentors. Oh, dude! Like, every time they did that, I was dying. Yeah, I loved uh, Mother Teresa. It's like I have compassion for all living things except you. I hate you. Yeah. Or or uh, Muhammad Ali, you are the greatest pain in my neck. 
<laughs> uh, dude, there's just there was so many great jokes in that. Like everyone was good, even 22 in the trying to find 22's thing. Oh and, yeah, it's like, like the jokes at the expense of librarians rang all too true for some people in like the right ways, but like it was brilliant and the animation yeah. that went along with everyone yeah like i love of course uh, one of my favorites even though it was probably an obvious line that was a joke that was going to come up it's like oh no souls don't die here that's for for souls that's going that's to for, happen when soul, yeah. souls go to earth like, yeah it's happen. like souls can't die here that's what happens when they go to earth or that's what earth's time yeah. is for but i love but i love like the little details in animation when they go into that everything room uh building and by the way, did y'all see the Pizza Del- Planet delivery truck? Hmm. No, I totally forgot to look for it. It's in there. It's in when they first go into that building. So, uh, um, okay, okay. Because that, well, like as people know, like animation fans know, Pixar has like the Stan Lee cameo thing going for them, where every film has a Pizza Planet truck in some shape or form. Um, and I loved like how they like the idea of like. Yeah, of course souls can't smell or taste or eat and digest. It just pops out of them. Probably has like the best maybe poop joke out of that. Just like 22, just popping that slice of pizza out. And um, and man, it just, it's so pretty. It's like Pixar has this way of just making everything feel co- cohesive Maybe not for the good dinosaur, but even then, the good dinosaur still looks great. Um, yeah. But it's it visually, it's just a stunning looking movie, and yeah, I think that we've covered everything. Unless there's any like little details or moments that you want to bring um, up. So you mentioned the Hall of Everything and the Pizza Planet truck. There's another Easter egg. Um, one of the street signs has um, a a one one three. Oh, of course, the animate this the classroom where all the Pixar animators came from. <laughs> yep. Um, did anybody spot any other like little p- other Pixar Easter eggs? Because I couldn't spot any uh, others, but I might have. But I was also working off of a screener uh, version of the film, so I probably couldn't see like if they I, hid in, any dolls or anything like in the background or seen. I wasn't really looking this time, to be honest. Like I was just so enamored with the movie that I need to go back now. And like, you know, get to watch it uh, differently, like where I can look around a little bit more because I was just so entranced. Yeah, no, it was just good. Um, but yeah, any other scenes y'all want to talk about before we wrap up and maybe talk about the the big heavyweight fight between Soul and Wolfwalkers? Um, uh, I, I, th- I, think, I think we covered all the, all the, ma- like the major moments in the film. Oh, I, I will say... The uh, after the barber scene where they kind of uh, make David Diggs's character the punchline, I love that you see him go back to David Diggs' character and kind of apologize yes. and such. Like it just makes it so much like much more wholesome, even though it is like I hate dealing with cynics, like uh, David Diggs' character um Paul is. But I like that they make up for that and such. So uh, that that's that's all. That's really all I have to bring up. Um, so for until because we didn't know if Soul was still coming out near the end. Like this was a few months back before the whole twenty uh, fifth uh, release date was announced. 
And a lot of people were thinking Wolf Walkers had the biggest chance of winning best animated feature this year. And then Soul was just like, oh, no, I'm still going to be around. And now that like Wolf Walkers and Souls have been r- racking up like best animated feature awards from different critic guilds and outlets, what like what so if this thing was if both of these films which are obviously going to be nominated for the ant for the oscars the the globes and the annies which one would you rather see win and for the heck of it you can say both if you wanted if they somehow came up with a tie um okay the easy answer for me since i have seen both is i like i would love to see a tie but failing that I would like to see Wolfwalkers win the Annie Award and and Soul win um, the Oscar and the Golden Globe. Because I, th- I, th- I think yeah. that's I think that's as that's as good of a fair trade as as we'll get as as fans of both of these movies. Now, so why did you choose Soul for the Oscars? I'm just curious. Do you think um, it, is it like a brand thing? It's, it, because it's all because that's always the criticism of the best animated animated feature Oscars. With and, and admittedly, yes, um, I think I think cha- like I think the chances of Soul winning the Oscars over Wolfwalkers is just more likely because the people voting for best animated feature, which um, as a reminder that that award is now open to everyone, not just the animation uh, oh, department. Gosh. I hate that. I hate that decision so much. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but, the re- but the reason I said uh, Soul for the Oscars and Wolfwalkers for the Annies is because the Annie Awards are more focused, um, focused on the animation uh, community. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that voting body will just have a deeper appreciation for for what Cartoon Saloon has brought to the table. Yeah. Plus, this this is probably going to be like the fi- the film that get, that has given them the most attention. So if it's going if it's going to if Cartoon Saloon is going to win any other year, this would be the year. Yeah. This is tough because they're both like both of these films are basically my number one favorite animated films of the year. Even though I put Wolfwalkers in one, they're like they're they're great in their own respective ways. Now, if this was now Soul was being pushed back to next year, and it was just going to be onward, Wolfwalkers all the way, just all of them. Oh yeah, Um, totally. Because as much as I still love Onward, Soul is the better movie um just on a lot of other elements even though like i said they're all that's the thing onward is a different movie than what soul is and um i think i just for the sake of like cartoon saloon getting more support i'd rather cartoon wolf walkers win and i think it's mostly because i've seen the the discussions of wolf walkers be a lot more up like positive and consistent than with soul but also soul just came out so i i'll have to see and i know it says like there someone on twitter was kind of getting kind of grumpy pants about like 
Well, now Soul's out, so now everybody thinks that one should win, even though Wolf Walkers is 100 times better, and I hate people who want Pixar to win. And it's like, chill, first off. I get what you're saying. But, like, yeah, I. it's tough because to beat Pixar and Disney at their own game, you have to have something that either completely stands out from the rest, like a Spirited Away or a Spider-Verse. And this is going to be a tough year because there are a few animated films that are just great, like Ride Your Wave, um, Onward. Uh, I think Over the Moon is going to probably be nominated. I don't I, think this I would is, be. I, I would be shocked if that doesn't get a nomination. Because as much as I love the Willoughby's, I think Over the Moon will be the better choice. But even then, I don't think Netflix is going to win. Their chance to win last year was with Klaus. Um even though I know a lot of people really liked I Lost My Body, um, but I think Klaus was the better movie. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd, I think I'd like Wolf Walkers to win, but I wouldn't be upset if Soul won. At least it would be more sensible than Toy Story 4. So, uh, uh, PJ, what do you I, think? I was going to say the unfortunate truth is I haven't had a chance to watch Wolf Walkers yet. Oh, yeah, so I, 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 it's, it's on my list because I'm, I'm very excited for it. I, it looks fantastic. And I mean, you know, anything like that I, is always good to see win. And the truth of the matter is Pixar has won a lot of awards. So I wouldn't really be opposed to Wolf Walkers winning the Academy Award, if only because it would be nice to see someone else get the award. But I also, it's hard to also make a case against Soul because I think Soul is just like such an incredible film. It, it's tough. These are both really good movies and they're both very mature films. Right. I would argue that maybe Wolfwalkers has a little more childlike wonder to it, but only because it's like, it has a few more comedic bits than Soul, but Soul, it, it's tough. I, it's like I could go either way, even though I still probably would want Wolfwalkers to win um but yeah it's tough but um but yeah in the end go see soul man it's oh and watch the short that that was supposed to go with it burrow which is a very cute wonderful bit of piece of six minutes of animation where it kind of has like that Ernest and celestine art style and um it's very cute no dialogue um I highly recommend that watching that short. Same. I I made my parents uh, watch watch that first before um, before we watched Soul, because I want I wanted I I wanted to share a little bit of a little bit of my love for for two D animation, and I'm also really hoping one day Pixar um, Pixar does a full feature in in that sort of style. I think that's going to have to be the case. If people want 2D animation to come back, a film, a studio like Pixar is going to have to be the one to throw their hat in the ring first because everyone else is a little too afraid to. And I understand like Spider-Verse happened. So it's like, we're going to see more creative CGI animation. But like I said, everyone kind of waits for the giant uh, monster in the animation world to make the first move before they all jump on board and such. But uh, yeah, watch soul. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Watch soul. Yeah. Uh, now before, before we end this, um, we, we usually like to end on recommendations 
And for mine, I'm, I'm stepping a little bit out of, out of our jurisdiction. Um, okay, first off, one, one of my recommendations is a show that, a series that we talked about in the last episode, um, Great Pretender, which I think is a nice uh, spiritual successor to Lupin the Third. It kind of has, the, like, it has that similar um, comedic bent to the heist genre. And much, much like some of the best Lupin the Third storylines, each, each different, each case is, a, is basically a character study for each of our four protagonists. It's, um, it has two seasons right now and it's on Netflix and it's awesome. If you wanna hear our more in-depth thoughts, check out previous episodes of this podcast. And my other recommendation, um, I briefly mentioned this on Twitter, but I think Soul would make a great double feature with It's a Wonderful Life because both, both um, deal with similar, uh, sim similar themes about, you know, appreciating the life that you have and how the people and how you affect the people around you. So my recommendation is going to be a uh, French animated film. Like, it, I, first of all, I apologize for the last episode. I've, if I sounded kind of flustered, I, I was just kind of having a busy, panicky week. Um, so that's why I was like a little like, oh man, I don't know what to recommend. Uh, so I just agreed with Michael and said like, yeah, watch Ernest and Celestine. Um, so this, this time, like I'm going to talk about an animated film that I think anyone can watch, but it's definitely aimed more at an adult audience. It's called The Illusionist. And you have to be careful because I know there's already a film called The Illusionist out there. This is the animated film follow-up from the same director of The Triplets of Belleville. And mm -hmm. this came out back in 2010. And it's about a uh, magician who adopts this young woman, girl. And it's just kind of like a, an interesting complex tale of just adjusting to the, like what life throws at you and just... It's a it's very different from the more comedic antic antics and spirit of the Triplets of Belleville film, but it still has a lot of that great two D animation that's just so detailed. And I hope the director is going to make another animated film. I heard he's maybe making a CGI film, but I'm not sure. But I definitely recommend it. It's also I think pretty cheap to get a get your hands hands on at about maybe. 10 bucks or so i don't know if it's playing anywhere but uh yeah just, just watch it it's great pj do you have any uh recommendations I, I mean you know it's it's kind of funny because i think that in the confines of what we've been talking about tonight there's one very obvious one and that's uh the castle of cagliostro if you guys have never seen it it was the second loop in the third film and it was directed by um Miyazaki it was his directorial debut and in my opinion I thought it was always like kind of the gateway into that world and the gateway into what Miyazaki would kind of become known for I think it shows a lot of um, his filmmaking style and choices very early on in his career before he would become the Miyazaki that we really knew and loved but I think it's also arguably as I've kind of said earlier like the quintessential Lupin adventure and in the confines of what we're talking about it feels 
kind of important to be like, you should go back and watch this one came out in 1979. So, you know, we're looking at 40 years old, this 41 years old now for this movie. And most people I feel like really haven't seen it, which is really a shame. So I can't recommend enough enough going back to this one and revisiting the world, getting to know the characters for the first time. If you've never seen, if you've never been introduced to them or if you know the characters, but you've never seen the movie reacquainting yourself with that world in it. Like, I just think it's such a masterfully done movie. Um, and it's just so much fun. Yeah, no, it's a fun action movie too. And unfortunately the Netflix version is kind of the weaker streamlined media release version. That's where they keep calling Lupin wolf or boss. Yes. Um, and so if you want to get like the pure, like, the best version of it discotech media re-released a blu-ray and they released a and they're going to release a 4k version of it and just watch that yeah just that that that's all i just want to make sure that was clear because it is out there but i i'd always recommend watching a specific dub for that one yeah absolutely and i i have that 4k pre-ordered um i can't wait for it to come out yeah well mike i think that wraps everything up yeah this uh this was a great episode. Uh, thanks, PJ, for uh, joining us on this one. Anytime, you guys. You know, I, I always like hanging out for a little bit with you guys and talking things animated. I, I was supposed to be on a couple of months ago, but my internet just stopped that from happening. So I'm uh, glad I got to finish 2020 um, in style with you guys. I, You know, it's always fun to come back and share some love with you, with the animation. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So, um where can everyone find you guys online? PJ, I'll start with you. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PJ underscore Campbell. You can find me over at the PJ Campbell Network where we're doing all sorts of fun things. We do watch-alongs, movie reviews, uh, Box Box, which is like our unbo- uh, curb your enthusiasm of unboxing videos is how I'm going to say it. That's the best description I've got for it. Um, we got a Patreon account if you want to help us keep the lights on. It's always awesome if you want to join that. And you can find me at the Movie Trivia Showdown where I'm where I'm, you know, writing questions. I'm the head writer over there. Be nice to the writers. We're only human. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. No problem. Right. It, was, it was great to have you on. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I post small little discussion threads from time to time. And um, I also run a website. Well, and those threads are just talking about animation and such. And I have a website called camsiview.biz where I do written reviews for animated films called The Other Side of Animation. And I've gone back into uh, reviewing live action films in my section of the site called Play It Again. And uh, you can find me on the Renegade Pop Culture Facebook group. And I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camsiview. And uh, that's why, where you can find me. Awesome. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CaptainK42. Check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. Find me in all the various Facebook groups just at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at Ren Pop Culture. All our podcasts are available on Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, wherever you listen. And last but not least, don't forget to check out renegadepopculture.com. Need an escape? So do we. That'll do it for this installment of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out. Bye. Bye, guys.